0: Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, a new online journal of politics, economics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. In this installment, Ben Klipsy talks with Dr. Ilana Redstone, professor of sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and founder of Diverse Perspectives Consulting. We dig into the epistemic question of how we know what we know and the usefulness of respecting viewpoint diversity by focusing on Dr. Redstone's new course, Bigots and Snowflakes, Living in a World Where Everyone Else is Wrong, as well as her forthcoming book, Unassailable Ideas, How Unwritten Rules and Social Media Shape Discourse in American Higher Education. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation between Klutze and Redstone has been slightly edited for clarity.
1: We continue our conversation about liberalism, what it means to live in a liberal society, challenges to the values of liberalism, and how we can advance a liberal tradition in our society. Today, our guest is sociologist Professor Ilana Redstone. She's a professor of sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her work has focused on demography, immigration, education, and viewpoint diversity, which is our topic for today. She's also a faculty fellow at the uh, Heterodox Academy, and she's the founder of Diverse Perspectives Consulting, which helps organizations to develop frameworks to improve communications and mutual understanding within the workplace. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Redstone.
2: Thanks for having me, Ben. It's nice to be here. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So our series, as I mentioned at the top, on liberalism and the different aspects of liberalism, particularly the values that are embedded in this concept, um, which obviously includes individual autonomy, pluralism, uh, mutual forbearance, toleration, and viewpoint diversity, which we really care about. I'd like to just delve in uh, with this first question. And I'd like your reaction to this quote by John Stuart Mill. And this is from his book on liberty. He says, the only way in which a human being can make some approach to knowing the whole of a subject is by hearing what can be said about it by persons of every variety of opinion and studying all modes in which it can be looked at by every character of mind. Now, my question to you is, do we really need to hear every variety of opinion? I mean, there are some vile opinions out there. Right.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, it's always an interesting question. I mean, so I think the short and a lot of times what people will bring up with this, you know, example are things like, well, do we really need, you know, a geography instructor, you know, who is a proponent of the flat earth, you know, who belongs to the flat earth society or something. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and of course the answer is no, there are limits. Um, And so, but the more interesting question is, is always who gets to decide what those limits are. Right. Right. So it's, and, and even, so there, so I guess there's, there's sort of two ways to think about it. One is, of course, there are limits. Who gets to decide what those limits are? And also, you know, what happens if those limits are drawn around particular political orientations, right? So what if there's, and which is I think partly where we are now, which is, you know, where essentially a lot of those limits have been drawn around one side of the political spectrum and I'm not talking about extremism. And so that I think makes conversation really hard You know, but again, it sort of comes back to that same question of who gets to decide what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. You know, should we have a requirement for all undergraduates to take uh, a class that studies the paranormal? Okay, well, probably most people would say no. But, you know, if you really want to include every possible idea, well, that should be on the list. You know, so of course, then of course, that's not, you know, that's no one's real, no serious person is really making that argument. You know, the other thing about Mill's quote that it's interesting is it gets at this question of this almost epistemological question of how we know what we know, which is something that I just personally I find interesting and that I talk to students about and sort of how and that I think is part of what we're seeing now in this moment are these questions about, you know, well, how do we know and what is truth and what is real and and all of those sort of almost philosophical questions. So, yeah. So, no, we don't need classes in flat earth or the paranormal Um, But someone has to make those limits, and who
1: does it? Yeah, and Mill is is very, very strong in that view that you have to expose ideas and and let people think for themselves, and eventually we'll get to the truth. Uh, The correct ideas will emerge. Very, very interesting. I wanted to ask you about um, your article, or Mm -hmm. I think it was a blog post on uh, Heterodox Academy uh, website. Uh, The title is Prepare Students to be Foxes, Not Hedgehogs. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So who who are foxes and and who are hedgehogs in in our society?
2: Yeah, so that's, so it's interesting. So that's from an Isaiah Berlin essay from 1953. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he talks about, and he has, he sort of raises it in a different context, but the idea is that a fox knows many things and a hedgehog knows one big thing. Um, And then that idea was, brought out again sort of into the forefront of the conversation in a 2005 book by Philip Tetlock. And so he, a professor at Berkeley, at least at the time, uh, he used the framework and he looked at the ability of experts to predict outcomes. And what he found was that people who sort of fit the characterization of being foxes were better forecasters um, in terms of being in their, in their category being experts and in terms of their ability to forecast what was coming that they were better forecasts, And he sort of argues that this is, partly, this is partly due to their stronger ability to be critical thinkers. And critical thinking is one of those terms that I feel like gets thrown around all the time. No one actually thinks that they're not a critical thinker. And no instructor actually thinks that they're not teaching critical thinking. And yet, somehow, nobody's actually doing it. And so it's a term that feels almost meaningless, but, but I don't have a better one. And then he also, the other thing Tetlock says about about the foxes is that they possess greater intellectual humility, which is that idea of intellectual humility is something that that I, you know, sort of, that I strongly agree with um, and sort of is near and dear to my heart. So, you know, I think it's an idea of, I think that the idea of training students to be foxes and not hedgehogs is just, is, you know, know something about lots of different things. And in this case, you know, in this context of viewpoint diversity, that would mean, you know, look at a problem from a lot of different angles. I think in the article I use the example of poverty, um, which is obviously something that's discussed, you know, in campuses, it's discussed in a wide range of departments and classes, you know, seeing it in from see, seeing poverty as, you know, having multiple complex causes and having multiple complicated solutions rather than, where, you know, something like oppression is part of that story, um, but it but not stopping there. Sort of not not saying that's, that's it, that's, that's where the story starts and ends, that's a piece of it. And looking at these other things, whether it's, you know, behaviors or, you know, all of these things that you're sort of not supposed to say and thinking about it that way. So I think, you know, I guess I would like, I try to, you know, work with students to become foxes, not hedgehogs. <laughs> Um, there's also been the other thing Tetlock says about that comparison is he talks about how the foxes are more skeptical of grand explanations, sort of a grand theory of everything, um, which to me also seems I think skepticism in general is sort of healthy. So um, and it certainly goes well with critical thinking. So, yeah,
1: I remember a, a while back when I was in college, a um I, I was going to take a, a, a certain class and I, I wouldn't say which class it, it okay. was, but my <laughs> professor said, you know, the, the class touches on everything. Basically it, it gives you a survey. And, uh, and he says that, uh, he quoted Alexander Pope and he mm-hmm. said, a little bit of knowledge is a, is a dangerous thing, you know, drink deep or taste not. And mm-hmm. he was, he was trying to warn me that, uh, you know don't don't take these survey courses why don't you just take something that just takes you deeper and deeper into a subject matter so that you become very knowledgeable about that so just um you know, someone might push back and say, but but we need both. Right. Right? We need both foxes and we need right. uh, talks as well. Right,
2: right. You know, yeah, I was thinking about that. I actually think that it's in te- at least the way I intend, I can't speak for Phil Tetlock, obviously, but at least the way I intend it, I mean it in a different way. So mm-hmm. there's still space to, you could be very focused in one narrow thing, like whether you're doing your dissertation or whether it's your major or whatever, and you could still be a fox in that you're looking at that from a lot of different perspectives, whatever that narrow little thing is. So I don't think that those, to me, at least in my conceptualization, it's not that we should all have great breadth and no depth. I don't think that's the answer either, but depth, you know, that the depth should take, you know, should encompass, should be more comprehensive. So I don't, I don't see those as mutually exclusive, but I understand that someone could try and make that argument, but I guess that would be my response.
1: Right, right. Now you mentioned critical thinking earlier, and I, I just wanted to ask you for your thoughts and what what you think critical thinking is.
2: You know, hmm, how would and I? How, and in? how
1: is that different from what what others, you know, see as critical thinking?
2: No, that's a fair question. Um, I guess I think of it as questioning the parts of knowledge that we're not in the habit of questioning, that we don't teach students to question. And frankly, like instructors aren't always prepared to question it. And so when I say critical thinking, that's so in that, and I know you somewhere, I guess, I don't know if we were going to talk about the FIRE paper, but in the paper that I presented at FIRE in 2019, so I talk a little bit about this, whereas an example would be, well, I had written about it in the, I had used the language of modern racism, but it's actually goes, I mean, colorblind racism is the same idea anti racism is sort of a different variation on the same theme and and the same thing with intersectionality, which is that, you know, these are theories, these are theoretical perspectives that have ideological, this is the point I make in that paper, these are theoretical perspectives that have ideological underpinnings. And that's fine. Like that, they should, Frank, my position, I sort of feel like, yes, they should be taught. We should be, students should be taught these things, but they should be taught that they're not truth with a capital I mean maybe they're true this is the humility part sort of like maybe that's actually how the world works like that's how social interactions you know that's that it's all determined by power structures or whatever like you know maybe that's actual but we don't really know maybe it's wrong and so as as with any other theoretical perspectives how useful is it and so that kind of framing I don't think that there is I mean, certainly in my own discipline of sociology, there's just not that. When I say so, just circling back to what you said about what is critical thinking, I would just—I don't know if I'm sort of—I'm sort of answering you with an example rather than a definition. But choose to encounter those kinds of ideas or to teach those kind of ideas, and just say, "Look, this is one way of understanding the world. This is not. This wasn't handed down from on high somewhere. Like this is just a way of understanding it, and maybe it's right, and maybe it's wrong. And what does it mean?" More specifically, what does it mean to tell people that they're wrong or bad or sort of morally flawed for not thinking that way or for questioning it? And so that when I say critical thinking, that's that's what I mean. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Now, I I was so I was going to ask you um, about sociology and and that, you know, since it it studies social change and, and looks at structure of groups, organizations and how people interact within these contexts. Uh, that'd be a rich tradition, in, in helping students become foxes. So basically, I, I wanted to welcome you to make a case for sociology as a discipline for developing foxes. But I think from your previous you know response, maybe not so much.
2: You know, I, sure, the potential is there. Like I, but I actually don't think I think that the development of foxes to to stick with that metaphor. You know, I don't think it's necessarily discipline specific. I think it's a it's a it's a way of thinking, and it's a way of kind of valuing an approach to problem solving that I think is transcends discipline divi- d- disciplinary divisions. And so, yes, yeah, soci- sociology certainly could do more. I don't think we're particularly good at it currently. I think that we, and this is also sort of, sorry, going back to the the paper for FIRE, but, you know, we teach conflict theory, really, is, you know, yes, we sort of dance around these other things, but... But mostly that's what we teach. And so that's that is a grand narrative. That's exactly what you know Tetlock says that foxes are and should be skeptical of are sort of grand explanations. And sociology, we seem to be kind of we really like a grand explanation. Mm-hmm. So we would have to, as a discipline, we would have to really back away from that. And there's all kinds of reasons why that's unpopular.
1: So, you know, your observation would be that. There are a lot more hedgehogs than, than foxes on on campuses these days.
2: you know I, certainly in, certainly in sociology, like I think that's true, and I don't think that's I don't mean to suggest that that's a personality flaw or or anything like that, and it's all very well intentioned. I happen to think it's not i think it I think that the costs of that approach Are much higher than the benefits, and I think that they are much higher than people generally recognize. That's, I guess, if I can frame it in a sort of cost-benefit way.
1: Now, you you have uh, tried to address this this uh, challenge by developing a course called the Sociology of Political Polarization: Bigots and Snowflakes. And uh, I wanted to ask you about that. First of all, do you think we're we're truly polarized, or is this something that we keep and so we've we've come to believe.
2: That's, okay, so that's a really good question. I hate the word polarization. (laughs) Um, So there are like three words come to mind that I can't stand because I feel like they're almost meaningful. One is critical thinking. I'm sorry, meaningless. One is critical thinking. Two is, uh, is polarization. And three would probably be the word ideological. Like I just, these words have just come to mean nothing to me. And so, but I don't really have better ones. Um, and so I'm sort of stuck with them, but I'll just go on record saying, I think that they're not helpful. Um, and so if someone has better alternatives, I'm open to it, but polarization, you know, I guess one question is what would you call it? Like, so I'll, I'll, again, I'll try and answer that with an example, you know, so recently in the, in, since George Floyd's death at the end of May, you know, and I'm just picking one specific case and you may or may not already be familiar with this, but there was a journalist at the Intercept, which is Glenn Greenwald's, you know, sort of website that did a lot of, he does writing. And anyway, the, the journalist's name is Lee Fang. And so he, and the Intercept is left leaning, largely left leaning. And uh, Li Fang posted a video, uh, did you, I don't know if you've seen this, but he posted a video. No, I have not. Okay, so he, it's very, you can just look it up or I could send it to you, or you can put it in the notes for this or whatever. But he posted a video on Twitter um, it's like a two-minute video where, um, as far as I understand it, if I'm remembering correctly, he's at a Black Lives Matter rally, and he's doing interviews, and he interviews this guy named Max, and Max says, Max is of some kind of mixed racial background. I think he's part has part Indigenous background and is part uh, Black, um, but he he refers to himself as Black, he says, you know, because that's how people see me and whatever, so... So that's sort of, you know, what he looks like. And so, um, and he, again, he says that at the beginning of the of the video. But Max makes the point that he, he essentially says, you know, he's talking about Black Lives Matter and he's there at the rally as a supporter of Black Lives Matter. But he's saying like, why do we only focus on black lives when a white person takes them, right? And he says, you know, there's, and he basically raises this issue of, black on black crime. And so, and he says, and he talks about himself and he says, you know, if I leave here today and I'm killed by a white person, he's like, it's gonna be front page news. He says, if I walk out of here and I'm killed by a black person, he's like, no one's gonna care. And so he sort of raises this question. And so then you end up, okay, so he raises this question and then he's obviously, you know, there are problem, there are people who will criticize his argument, but then even one degree, you know, a degree once removed, Lee Fang was then accused of racism for posting the video, right? So he was called out as being racist just for posting this video without stating his own. Now, maybe it's implied that by posting it, he's implicitly endorsing it or whatever. But, you know, so if that's and the argument is that, you know, I suppose it's something like if, you know, that by saying those arguments, Max is denying the the systemic and structural racism that is Truly determining these disparity, all sorts of disparities, including related to crime, um, and that he was not, you know, he was not accurately portraying, or he was, or maybe that he was equating black-on-black black violence with policing, and so you know, that would be the argument, but, and so some people would say that that's racist, where someone else is going to hear that argument and just say, or hear what Max said and just say, you know what, these seem like relevant facts to be considering, like we should be having a conversation about these points that Max raised. So when you have a situation where you have one group that's saying, you can't even say that because it's racist, which is still a pretty, that's a pretty strong accusation in this culture. And you have someone else who's saying, what do you mean that's racist? Like, this is just, he's making an observation, a true observation, and I'm not, and he's not even supposed to say it without social penalty. I don't know if that's political polarization, but it's certainly some kind of dysfunctional breakdown in how we communicate about problems that really matter. So I don't know if, again, I don't know if political polarization is the right term there, but it certainly seems dysfunctional.
1: Yeah, and it seems as though, you know, social media also poses some, some challenges to this. I, I've right. seen people, to avoid these problems, I've seen people, you know, put on their Twitter accounts that, you know, a retweet is not a, an endorsement, right. you know, uh, right. to, just to clarify. And, right, I don't
2: know if anyone actually pays attention to those things. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, now, no, I've seen that too, yeah.
1: Right, right. Now, now back to the uh, uh, bigots and, and snowflakes, why did you pick the, the, the title in particular?
2: You know, so that title, so in the spring of, let's see, 2018, because I taught it for the first time in the spring of 2019 and for the second time in spring of 2020. And so in the spring of 2018, I wanted, I, I realized that I wanted to teach this class. I was sort of like, you know what, might as well just sort of grab the bull by the horns here. And just, just if I'm going to mix my metaphor metaphors here, just dive right in. Um, and so, and so I was having a conversation with my brother who is not an academic, but he's just a very smart, thoughtful person. And so I was talking to my brother about how to name this thing in a way that sounded, you know, uh, sexy is not the right word, but sort of that sounded, you know, the I could have called it, you know, the sociology of higher education or something, or I don't know, but it's because that was originally how I was thinking about it. Now it's obviously much broader than higher education. Um, And so Bigots and Snowflakes was what we came up with. The course was originally called Um, Just bigots and snowflakes. And then I think there was a colon and then living in a world where everyone else is wrong. Um, And then when I applied to go through the college to get a regular course number. One of the things that they said is they were like, you actually They were like, you need to change the name, not because they objected to the name, but they were like, you can't have a course students can not have a course on their transcript where, cause it's usually just the first part of the course that shows up on their transcript. And they were like, they can't, ke- you can't have a course that just says bigots and snowflakes, like student, like employers or whatever are not going to know or graduate schools or whatever, like they're not going to know what to do with that. And so right. that's why the name became when, with the regular course number it's now called. So now the sociology of political polarization, which sounds much more dignified is going to show up on their transcripts, but it's the same class. And so then I the bigots know. and snowflakes comes after the colon now.
1: I see, I see. actually that, yeah. that, that pushback makes makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah
2: no I was, it seemed like a totally reasonable point. yeah, you want to you know I don't want to condemn them to having to explain forever what this thing is on their transcript.
1: So how do you how do you teach the, the class?
2: So I so I've taught it twice and I'll teach it for the third time in the spring of um, 2021, which will be you know after the election and uh, whatever that is and whatever that looks like, I think it will be it will raise questions for people. And if it's online, we'll do it online. Um, normally I do it in person, but, you know, that's sort of out of my hands. But how I teach it is, you know, there are a couple of things that I do in that class. One is I, I try to get the students, I ask a lot of questions, just to really get, try to get students into this way of thinking that is sort of, how do you know? How do you know? Like, oh, so you think this person is, you know, racist, and that it often centers, not always, but it's often about race. You know, how do you know? How do you, maybe they are, but what if you're wrong? Sort of a lot of these, a lot of those kinds of questions. And so, and the way that that will often come up is that I'll start each class by asking students to come, like, so I'll, I'll start each class by asking students to talk about, you know, sort of, what have you seen out there in the wide world that, you know, makes you think of this class or, you know, different, and they'll be, like, and they'll, you know, bring in examples of, well, this person did this on, and they got canceled. And, you know, they're tapped into a whole world of social media that I know nothing about. So sometimes they bring examples I hadn't heard of, and sometimes they'd bring things, you know, like this YouTube person got, and I'm like, I have no idea who that is. But, but you know, they were, but the, that, those kinds of conversations and sort of thinking about you know, how do you, what is your response? How do you know, you know, even questions like, okay, this person did this thing that you think is offensive. What would it take for you to sit down and have dinner with them? You know, what would it take? What, what would it take? If the answer is nothing, then, you know, what does that mean? And so a lot of questions I could just tell you, I put, pull out one quote from a student that to me was like one of the best about, evalu- like she, uh, the student wrote it in their reflective paper at the end of the semester, but they said, The big question in the class was, well, how do you know? In every topic we discussed, Professor Redstone was there to play devil's advocate. If you jump to conclusions and only see things from one point of view, it is hard to point out flaws in your argument. It's also easier to make assumptions, but you can't always assume people's intentions. So to me, if I spent 15 weeks and students come out of it at the end going, well, how do I know? That's great. that's wonderful. Like, yay, more. Um, so a lot, so sorry, to circle back to your question, a lot of it is asking questions and trying to get them to understand, you know, through the readings and things that we do, trying to get them to think about moral complexity, for instance, you know, one of the things that I did in the spring of the last time I taught it in the spring of 2020 is, and I tried to find an example that Trump, sometimes it's helpful to just get away from the identity stuff um, because it gets you know, it gets tiring to be constantly talking about that um, for everyone in the class, I think. And so one of the examples that I've used in class is a short story by Ursula Le Guin. I don't know how to say her last name, but Le Guin. Have you ever heard of the story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omalas? No, I have not. So it's a great, it's great. And it, and it's a great, I think it's a great teaching tool. And so it's a story, it's a short story. It's, you can, li- we listen to it in class. It's like, you know, there are four minute audio versions in on YouTube that you can listen to people reading it. But it's a story about it's about this sort of utop- uh, not, yeah, sort of this utopian community, and everything is, you know, sh- and she says in the story, she's like, "Make it your own. Whatever you think would be the perfect society, just that's what it is. Whatever your dream is, that's what this society is. But the price for that society is that there's a child who is essentially kept a prisoner and treated horribly um, and just, you know, deprived of any sort of physical contact, deprived of nutrition, you know, just treated horribly. And everybody in this community knows that the child is there and they know that the child is, um, the price that they have to pay for their utopian society. And so the question is, and I'll stop, you know, people can listen to the story, but the question is sort of, what would you do? Like, do you, and so the ones who walk away from Omelas, the village is called Omelas And so the ones who walk away are just the people who like, they can't decide what to do. Like, because if you free the child, if you free the child, then you have to bear the responsibility that you have, you have put the entire, you have ruined the utopian society for everybody in that community. Right. But you freed the child. And so do you want to live with, can you live with that burden? Can you live with the burden of knowing that this child is being essentially tortured and deprived? And so the ones who walk away, they just walk away because they can't, And so, but anyway, so it doesn't, it relates in the, in the sense I've used it as a tool for, you know, just sometimes things are complicated. Like it's not always easy to know what the right thing to do is. It's not obvious. So sometimes I use that as a teaching tool, really trying, but it's, but it's over time, like really trying to get students to think about some of those hard questions. And I think that the trust that you build over the course of the semester, I think helps.
1: And so I guess you're you're trying to help them to be a bit more humble about what they think that they know.
2: Yeah. At some level. I mean, I think we do, I think we're terrible at it. I think we're terrible at humility. Like, and I don't mean humility in the sense of, you know, Oh, I understand I'm not the fastest runner or the best chef or, you know, or, you know, the next Rube Goldberg or whatever. Like I, I mean, I mean, humility, like I'm not so sure of what I think I know about, oh, I saw this interaction between these two people or with me and somebody else. And I think it's this, but maybe it's, you know, but maybe it's not. Maybe I'm wrong. And everybody sort of thinks that they have good reasons for doing what they're doing. So it's sort of like, okay, these situations are actually a lot more complicated than they might first appear. And certainly than they appear on Twitter.
1: (laughs) Certainly. So is that... Usually the, the common response, like how do they react? Is that mostly feeling like, wow, I, I, I'm now asking myself all these questions?
2: Uh, I think about- it depends. I mean, I think, that, I think that there are some students, I think there's a range. So my experience, you know, with I, teaching it twice, you know, unsurprisingly, I think there's a range of what people get out of it. Um, I think that there are some students who really, I think it really changes how they think. And I think there are some students who feel like who probably dig in as much as they did beforehand, but, you know, I don't expect to, I think it would be unrealistic to say it's going to be a transformative experience for everybody who sets what's foot in, in the classroom. I mean, that would be great, but I don't know that that's realistic, but I do think that there, is it okay if I read one more quote? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so there's one more quote from a from a student. So this is also from last semester. He wrote, this course has been an outstanding exploration of the dichotomy between bigots and snowflakes and between extremes of the political spectrum as well as, and possibly more importantly, the middle and the gray areas. My biggest takeaways are the importance of humility and admitting when you do not know something, the importance of diversity of opinions and ideas, especially when those ideas are contrary to mainstream thought, and a reinforced understanding that nothing is quite as black and white as it is often made out to be. Great, that's like makes me feel like I didn't totally waste 15 weeks, you know, but, but people will get different things out of it and that's okay.
1: That's, that's great. So if there are, and I think that there will be some academics and professors who'll be listening to this, what would your advice be on, on how, to, how to teach this and how to, you know, implement this type of uh, course?
2: I mean, do, would a concrete example help? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one example would be, let's say you want to talk about you know, okay, so just take an example. I'll use affirmative action as an example, because it's so everyone understands what it is. It's so well, it it requires no explanation. Everybody sort of knows what I'm talking about. You know, so if you want to talk about affirmative action, and you want to talk about sort of different views on affirmative action. So I might start with something like, you know, I might start and I have started with a question, you know, is it possible to be opposed to or question the merits of affirmative action and not be racist? Is it possible? Right. And so and, you know, and most people are sort of like, "Why? yeah, I guess it's possible. Like, I mean, it's kind of hard to argue that it's impossible. Um, and so, I mean, I've, people could. I don't really I haven't really heard that argument, but it seems like a hard argument to make. And so I would start with a question like that. And again, I'm not trying to convince anyone that they should be against affirmative action. Like that's never my point. And I've made that very clear in class. And just to use that example, like I don't really care if they're for it or against it. I just care that they are able to have a conversation about it without, you know, being emotionally hijacked. And so, you know, so start out with, yeah. So is it possible to, for somebody to be opposed to affirmative action or a particular affirmative action program and not be racist? Okay, so if you can get them to sort of say, yeah, I guess it's possible, then you could go on to say something like, all right, well what what are the reasons why somebody might oppose affirmative action generally or oppose a particular affirmative action program? Why? And usually, and I'm well, and I'm usually the first one to put up there, I'm like they could be racist. Like they could just be racist. They could just really resent the people that stand to benefit from those programs and like, let's not pretend that that's not a real thing. Right. So that's, that is, you know, reason number one. Okay. We'll put that on the board. Okay. Well, what are some other reasons that they could, uh, what, what are some other reasons? And then sort of let students come up with other reasons like, well, they might not think that maybe they think that it doesn't actually benefit people, or maybe they think that, you know, it's not the right way to sort of allocate things in society or maybe, you know, or, or who, whatever else they come up with, like, you know, just let people sort of brainstorm about it. And so then you could have, maybe have a list of three or four items or four or five items or whatever, um, that you've gathered. And then you can say, well, how do you know, like, how do you know you meet someone that's, and you've realized that they're opposed to affirmative action or they're opposed to some specific affirmative action program, either one, how do you know which it is? And you know, and just kind of talking about like, you, I don't know how, you know, like, unless they're, unless you find them, you know, in a crowd, you know, with a, with a tiki torch or something like I, I don't, it's not, it's not immediately clear to me how, you know. And so sometimes people will say, well, you know, why would you bend over backward to give them the benefit of the doubt? Right? Like, well, I've heard people say that sort of, why would you do that? And I think the answer gets back to this cost and benefit thing. You know, what does it mean? And this, I've I've had this conversation with students, like, what does it mean to get it wrong? Like what from a, if you care about how people have conversations and how we talk about these complicated issues, sure, you can say, well, this is just, you know, he's probably racist. Okay, well, what if you're wrong? And what if you're wrong repeatedly? And what does that mean? And so I, so I guess coming back to your question of how to do it, that's a lot of what I try and do is sort of just come at it with, well, what do you think about that? What does that mean? did? how do you know, how can you know that that's what they're, you know, you see inside their head, like, and what, and what if you're wrong? My hope is that that gets them thinking on their own about, okay, well, you know, what does that mean? And. Yeah, I don't know.
1: I I really like your your framing and, you know, what if you're wrong question, because I I think not many people think about it in in those terms.
2: Well, I think Um, it's different than saying you are wrong, right? Because I'm not, I don't even feel, maybe you're right. Like, what do I know? Maybe the person really is racist. How would I know? But you don't know either. And so like framing it in that way.
1: Now, I imagine that some of these strategies are applicable outside of the classroom, right? Right. you know, given, given your experiences studying viewpoint diversity and teaching it, what would be your recommendation for how we discuss some of the difficult public policy conversations taking place, you know, related to COVID-19, diversity, and, and, and so on, uh, to maintain a robust liberal tradition?
2: Well, I guess, can I, those sound separate to me, the COVID-19 and diversity sound mm-hmm. sure. separate? Sure. Um, you know, with respect to the COVID-19, you know, I guess the short answer is I don't really know. And the reason that I would say that is because I feel like we sort of missed the boat. I feel like to have a a real clear response to COVID-19, we need to have, we need to have had these, have had progress on these conversations beforehand. And the fact, and sort of COVID-19 hit when we were really like sort of coming apart at the seams anyway. And so now it's almost like, well, we can't go backwards and fix it. And our conversation is already broken down. But I think, you know, you and I, when we talked the other day, you know, and I just said, you know, take the mask wearing, for example, like mask wearing is, or face covering, whatever you want to call it. To me, that that is the clearest example of what you need a social contract for, right? Like you need... I wear my mask because it protects you. You wear your mask because it protects me. That's a social contract. And so we are so far from the, a place where people feel like, and again, I don't, I'm under no illusion that you would ever get 100% of you know people on board, but we're so far from a place where people feel like they're part of a bigger whole. And I guess it ties to diversity in a certain way in the sense that if all you do is focus on differences, I don't know how can we be surprised that we'd no longer see what we have in common. I mean, I, so I guess, I don't know what you, I don't know what you do about that now with respect to COVID. Although, you know, the more serious things get, I imagine the more, the less, I don't know, maybe you cross some threshold where it stops or it becomes less of a political divide because everyone is just forced to realize that, yeah, you know what, this is not a liberal hoax or whatever. It's not. And then the diversity thing, I, So a couple thoughts. One is that um, I think that diversity, the way we think about diversity has to shift in the sense that it has to start to include viewpoint diversity. And and by that, I mean, you know, focusing on realizing that and respecting that sometimes people just think completely differently about identity um, and how they form their own identity and that that's part of it. And that, you know, also that, I guess I would say the other thing is that, um, yeah, so focusing, I said what I said before, focusing on not solely focusing on differences, focusing on similarity. And then I guess the last point I would say about the diversity part is that, you know, with all of this stuff, and I'm going to lump together sort of, because the, the latest trends seem sort of seems to be anti-racism training, which I know it's different from diversity training, but it, they, I mean, we could probably have a separate conversation about how they're linked. I, so I'm going to just, for the purposes of this conversation, link them just briefly you know, the idea that if we give everyone the same training, and I'm not even talking about whether you think, you know, Robin DiAngelo has the, you know, has the keys to unlock the universe or whatever. But if we, this idea that if everyone has the same information, if we just tell them, if we just show them, if we just turn the lights on and we just show them the way that people are going to be on the same page about these really complicated and sensitive issues like racism, like and all of the sensitivity that goes along with it, that strikes me as perhaps one of the most flawed and dangerous assumptions that we make. Um, There's just, and at some level, thank God, right? Like, thank God that people won't think the same way. How boring would it be if we all had the same information and we thought all it took was having the same information and then we all agreed with each other? That sounds boring.
1: Right, right. So on, 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 you know, all of these, and particularly with, with COVID-19, do you think that, you know, scientists and epidemiologists are, are, are asking the what if I'm wrong question enough.
2: Oh, I see what you're saying. Is there enough humility? i probably not. I mean, I, you know, I'd have to think more about it. I mean, it, I would say probably not, mostly because I, my experience, my sense is that people in general, particularly people that have public platforms, generally don't ask that question enough, partly because the way you get a public platform is by not asking that question, you know, so there's a, there's a circularity there. I don't know. I mean, I do think that, you know, I guess this was certainly true, you know, early on in, you know, in March and April, and maybe it comes back to being true. But these questions about, you know, either you care, the framing of sort of either you care about the economy, or you care about grandma, um, you know, it's sort of like, that's, that's its own kind of, really, like, those are my choices. You know, so do they ask the question of, what do I know? How sure can I be? I don't know. I sure hope they are. Like, how sure am I that this is the right way to go? How sure am I that this is the right policy, that this is the right, you know, that shutting down in this way for this long is the right way? I sure hope people are asking those questions for all of our sake. And it doesn't mean that they won't get it wrong sometimes. I mean, yeah, someone's got to make the decision.
1: So um, I wanted to touch on your forthcoming book, mm-hmm. which is... Unassailable ideas: How unwritten rules and social media shape discourse in American higher education. What is your thesis, and and when is it coming out? By the way.
2: So that book is, I think. So my co-author on that is John Villasenor um, at UCLA, and so and we were actually looking at the website the other day, and I think on the it's so that's through Oxford, and I think it says it's pre-orders or it's shipping. No, I think it said shipping on September twenty-second, so soon. I have no idea. I don't have enough experience with Oxford to know if they actually stick to their dates. But if they do, then September 22nd. There you go. So order it. But the thesis in that.
1: Awesome.
2: Yeah. So that so that'll come, you know, so that that'll come out soon. The idea in that book is that there are um, a set of unwritten. Really, we call them sort of three beliefs that that underpin a lot of what goes on in academia, And that is with respect to research, teaching, and really in in the administrative components of the academic enterprise. And we focus on higher education because we're both professors at you know at large state institutions. But I think that really everything that we say, certainly now even more than when we were doing the bulk of the writing, applies to a lot of our sort of main cultural institutions as well. Um, And so those three beliefs that we talk about, um, we talk about how they. The fact that they're unacknowledged is problematic, um, that they sort of are assumed to be just how everyone sees the world. I mean, I can tell you what they are. So one is that the first is that any action that's taken to undermine traditional or existing power structures is automatically deemed to be a good thing. Um, And so we're very... We try to be very clear in the book that this is we're not defending traditional power structures. We're not trying to say, well, if we could only go back to the good old days, like that's not the point. It's the point we're, we're saying is that this reflexive idea that everything that we do to change that is automatically, if by definition, a good thing, that that's not that's sort of an uncritical way of looking at it right? If we go back to the critical thinking part. So that's the first one. The second one is that all differences in group outcomes are due entirely to discrimination. And so, and again, because this is so sensitive, like I want to be very clear that this, we are not saying, I'm not saying, we don't say in the book that discrimination is not a part of of those differences. It absolutely is. But the belief part of it is that that's the only part that we talk about that we're sort of supposed to talk about. So that's, so that's the second one. And then the third is the belief in the primacy of identity along the lines of how we normally think about identity. So along race, ethnicity, gender, gender expression, gen, you know, sexual orientation, all of the sort of ways that we usually think about identity. And so that, and this goes back a little bit to what I was saying before with the diversity piece, um, you know, that is how some people conceptualize their identity. That is not how everybody does. And it's not even clear that it's the best way. And so, but, you know, but it's one of those things you're not, that's not, you're not really supposed to question. And and I think that placing these ideas or any ideas really on a pedestal that says, we're going to put these up here on this shelf. We're not going to criticize them. That's the unassailable ideas part. Um, it's not, it first of all, it's it's antithetical to the idea of higher education, but it's also, it's just not helpful. Like it's not helpful. And so then the, the social media part of that is that, these beliefs or these rules are sort of upheld by indirect and direct effects of social media. So the direct effects are through this really, you know, and I know cancel culture is its own controversial term, but sort of public shaming. And then the indirect effects are sort of the climate that that creates. And, but that, that, but that combined that this, that the effects of social media are to really make sure that these stay as a dominant set of beliefs.
1: I'd imagine that social media also does provide some solutions to some of these challenges, right? Okay. To the extent that you you still have multiple voices and, and people who can, you know, challenge ideas and you know, going back to viewpoint diversity. Yeah. Because I, I think there are people still, you know, who are trying to do that right now, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, gosh. So if you're looking for personal experience on social media. I am not the expert. Mm-hmm. I don't I do not do a lot on social media. I mean, I sort of read what other people, my sense is that people who sort of stick their neck out that they do so, it's very big, partly because of, or maybe largely because of the, the nature of the platform. And I guess I'm thinking mostly of Twitter, although that doesn't have to be, that's not the only one. You, it's very hard to go into depth on anything. I mean, yes, I understand people write these long threads and sometimes, you know, they get, they are, they get, widely read they become widely read i know that in the few occasions when somebody has reached out to me on twitter and said something on twitter like sometimes what i'll do if i can find them it's just email them i'm just like i you know i just i'm not gonna like i can't get it in 140 characters whatever it is i just i'm not even gonna try and it's and i think it does the whole conversation a disservice so but you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that you think some people are actually navigating this successfully on social media. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just wandering out loud, really.
2: Yeah, no, you might be right. I um, I don't know. I also one of the things that's hard is that, you know, a lot of times doing this, having these conversations and doing this work, you end up just kind of preaching to people who already agree with you. I'm well aware that there are some people that I will that will never want to listen to me that will just they will just resent every word that comes out of my mouth and they will just not want to hear it at all. Like I get that. And so but I do believe that there's some subset of the population who, you know, I have the I have a very fortunate I'm in a very fortunate position in the sense that I'm an academic. I don't I you know, I structure my own job. I can spend ridiculous amounts of time thinking about this stuff right? I can just sit here and think about it all day. So, you know, I can, I have that luxury. And so to the extent that my time can then be of benefit to somebody else who has to spend their time doing and thinking about other things, I, you know, if that's helpful, that's a good thing, but, you know, getting out of that trap of only talking to people of, that already agree with you, it's hard.
1: Yeah. So what do you want to be the, um, the key takeaway from, from the book and, and, you know, sort of the action items that you'd like to take away after reading the book.
2: Yeah. I think that the book is, um, I think that, and I don't want to speak for John, but I, I mean, we, we, you know, I've obviously talked about this. I, you know, I would like it to be the beginning of a conversation, right? I mean, I don't, we don't, I don't think either of us thinks that we have the final word on any magical solution Um, But I would like it to be the beginning of a conversation about, you know, what's going on, what the problems are and how, what really what the best path forward is. And so that's my hope, you know, and I think that, and that's so specifically within higher education, outside of higher education, you know, I would hope for the same thing, like more honest conversations I don't know if I mentioned this when we talked, but I also have, um, hopefully in the middle of August, I'll have, I've been working with some people's, a wonderful group at the University of Illinois on a series of videos, um, short videos about viewpoint diversity. Um, and there are basically, there are seven of them. I think six of them are substantive and they're, I think the longest one might be maybe six or seven minutes. So they're short videos. And they're not just me as a talking head, like they're animated. And the people who have been doing the animation are, I mean, really talented. Like they're just doing an amazing job. And so those should be hopefully ready by the middle of August. And I bring that up because they will be free and publicly available. It's my hope that that would be something else that would be a way to start a conversation both inside academia and out, right? So you're you're saying sort of where do you hope to go? Um, you know, so it's sort of like how can we start more of these conversations in a way that doesn't, you know, deteriorate into something completely dysfunctional. So right. that's my goal.
1: Fantastic! And you also founded this firm, um, Diverse Perspectives Consulting. It did. Um, trying to do some of these things outside of academia.
2: Right. I've the worst timing, but yeah.
1: Right. So how do you how do you do it? Uh, how do you do diversity training, and and how is what you do different?
2: Yeah. So I don't think I'm necessarily a substitute for more conventional diversity training. I think that what I'm doing is a complement to that. And so one of the things that I think is easier in some ways, and and to be clear, like that, I set up that business about a year ago, just under a year ago. So the website is just what you said, diverseperspectivesconsulting.com. Um, the idea was that, you know, all of what I'm seeing and what the book is about within higher education is not limited to higher education. There's There's just, you know, students don't stay students for a couple reasons. One, students don't stay students forever. And two, you know, the argument is that, you know, what goes on in higher education is just sort of sits upstream of everything else. It sits upstream of media and it sits upstream of culture and sort of all of this. So it all just kind of flows. It doesn't stay within campuses. Um, And so, you know, this idea that some of what I'm doing in the conversations that I'm trying to engage with, those would be helpful in a way outside of academia, um, in corporations, in organizations, and in other institutions. And the advantage in some ways of that, particularly in corporations, is that, you know, there's a bottom line that everyone gets on board with in a way that's a little different in the academy. And that means that you have a chance, I'm not saying it's easy, but you have a chance to come up with, for instance, some kind of statement that says, well, what what kind of environment, what kind of workplace climate do we want to create? Right. And if you can get people like so that's where I start is sort of what kind of, you know, and one example would be, you know, we want an environment with open communication where innovation can thrive. I mean, innovation in particular, this is something obviously that from, a a, you know, universities value it, too, but in a different way. But from a bottom line perspective, you know, corporations obviously put a high priority on it. And so, okay, well, then you can if you get people on board with a sort of general statement about what do we want here? then you can start to have a conversation about all right well what are we doing how does how do we handle these you know sensitive issues particularly around identity and people being offended and questions around intent versus when does intent matter when do people's feelings matter what do you do if those things conflict and you can always go back to that sort of statement about okay well this is the climate that we said that we want to create if we do this is that going to get us closer or further to that climate and so So you can do that. Again, I'm not saying it's easy, but you can do that with, I think you have a better chance of doing that in a corporate setting in some ways than you do in a higher education where you, because in higher education, you can't even, you can't get past the argument of what are we trying to do or what kind of climate do you want? Like, I mean, you'll have that argument for the next 10 years. Um, Whereas I think you have, like, at least from what I've seen, you know, there's there's more of an incentive for everyone to just point all the boats in the right direction or in the same direction on that kind of thing in uh, the corporate world
1: right so as as you know we're nearing the end here, yeah. um, I just wanted to get you to reflect on the future a little bit. Are you optimistic
2: in the long term, yes, in the medium term and the long term, I think I am i just I think that uh yeah, I am optimistic. I don't know how I feel about the short term. I feel like things could go sideways a while more before, before we sort of get back on track. And I don't know what the time frame is for that. But I think that, you know, I think that the moment that we're in and sort of the awakening that we're seeing, particularly in that specifically with respect to race and racism, you know, there's a lot that's good in that. I think that if what happens, and this is the worry in the short term, if it's, if the conversation is only about, and I'm sorry, I'm going to just, because there's, I'm going to use these names because it's so well known. And I think it's sort of will be clear what I'm referring to. But if it's all about white fragility, and if it's all about how to be an anti-racist, I don't think that's going to work in the long run. I just, I just don't think it is. I don't, I think that there are too many assumptions and beliefs that underpin that way of thinking that people won't get on board with. And again, I'm not even saying like whether I think it's right or wrong. I just, I just setting that aside for the moment, like I just don't think I don't think you're gonna get enough people in the long term to agree that the world is actually so simple that you can that everything is either racist or it's not or it's or it's if it's not anti-racist, then it's racist, just to use that example. Or that you know the solution to racism is for white people to be constantly apologizing for it like I just I don't I don't think it's helpful I think so I think I guess I but maybe I'm overly optimistic there but I think that that won't I don't think it'll last because I don't think it's I don't think it's helpful um and so ultimately I don't think it will sort of win out but I don't know yeah that's my that's my thought but things could certainly we could go deeper into the into the you know into the bog before we get my, we come out the other side <laughs>
1: All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Professor Redstone, for uh, taking the time to
0: speak to us. Uh, We're very grateful. Thank you. Thanks
2: so much, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.